Hello, and welcome to Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic. Today's episode is scheduled for upload to the various podcast platforms of the internet on September 11, 2021, the 20th anniversary of the attacks on New York and Washington, D.C., commonly known as 9-11. For those of us who lived through that day, and yes, there are now scores of folk who were born after the event, it was a horrendous cataclysm that we will never forget. We certainly remember where we were as the tragedy unfolded. We were traumatized, perhaps none more so than those who were in New York or Washington or Pennsylvania where Flight 93 crashed, the terrorists foiled in their attempt to fly to the Capitol, or who lost loved ones in the attack. Their lives were permanently scarred. For the rest of us, we have the memories of where we were for the entire duration of the attack. Perhaps worried for people we knew in the area who we could not get a hold of, only to feel some relief when we finally made contact. As the day proceeded, nobody in North America or the Western Hemisphere could be sure attacks wouldn't happen locally. What was certain, and certain immediately, was that it was an illusion to think that because we lived in very privileged circumstances, we were somehow protected from the evils of the world. My personal memory is most likely not much different than many of yours. I'm sure we all realized our own experiences were shared to a greater or lesser degree as we eventually discussed and debriefed what happened with our friends and colleagues. In my case, I was quietly reading that morning. It was a sunny one in Toronto, where I was living at the time, as it was in New York, until I received both an email and a phone call from my wife telling me to turn on the television. We were being attacked. Not quite understanding what she meant, I proceeded to do so. When I did turn on the TV, the second tower had just collapsed. That was what I first saw, a massive smoking ruin. Yet it took me a few moments to make sense of what I was looking at. From that moment, I joined the millions of us who were glued to our television for what seemed like forever. Those first hours and then days seemed endless and horrifying at the time. The one thing that I kept doing while watching the devastation, the utter horror of the scene unfold, was to look away from the screen out the window of our apartment and down at the plaza below. People were quietly going about their business, shopping, walking, waiting to get on a bus. Everything seemed normal. The contrast between what was being broadcast and the everyday life outside, although I'm sure most people were aware of what was going on as they went about their business, that contrast was jarring. It didn't make any sense. None of it made sense. 
and it didn't make sense for days on end. What was clear, though, was that life was never going to be the same again. Catastrophic events are unavoidable markers of time present and time past, always having an effect on time future. The attack on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon was brutally simple and effective. Men armed with box cutters taking over flying fuel tanks that just happened to be transporting unwilling people, considered inconsequential to their cause. The cataclysm was fiery and destructive. Thousands dead. It was, and remains, for now, the biggest terrorist attack against the West. But the attack was meant to have a slow burn as well. A cruel reminder that every day, thousands of people around the world were victims of battles involving terrorist groups and organizations with ultimately apocalyptic agendas, in many cases sanctioned by government agents with similar views. As far as I can determine, there had never been towers destroyed in this way anywhere before, causing such wanton destruction and death. However, not everywhere are there towers. Entire villages have also been decimated in the blink of an eye. On September 11, 2001, not only the West, but the whole world realized that comfortable first world societies were not immune anymore. And that was the whole point of the attack. It's a slow burn and it is still in effect. We have been demoralized, rightly or wrongly. We have been dragged into unnecessary conflicts, another desired outcome of the attackers. We have questioned our own morality and mortality, and that may have been necessary. If only we had questioned ourselves that deeply well before the attacks, Alas, many of us unfortunately began to accept what happened as collateral damage. I mean, really, how else can you explain COVID deniers as well as their complete and jejun rejection of the efficacy of vaccines? For months on end, COVID produced a daily death toll that outnumbered the loss of 9-11. Daily, for months, there is a direct line that can be drawn from our current situation to 9-11 20 years ago. What that tells us is that the trauma did real and potentially irreparable damage to the very fabric and zeitgeist of our society. Whether we liked it or not, our own faults and worldly ennui were ultimately exposed and laid bare. Individually and collectively, we have been forced to come to terms with our place in the world. What has this got to do with music and this podcast? Well, on September 11, 2001, the music and all the arts 
stopped. How could it really be any other way? There was too much pain and suffering that was immediate and all-consuming. It was hard enough to process what was going on. Really, there clearly was no room for creating or consuming art at that moment. Radio and television stations that normally only broadcasted entertainment just couldn't. Some TV stations showed only cards that basically said the same thing. We just can't right now. When a wound, physical or mental, is fresh, it's all one can feel for a while. Eventually, our senses and receptors can process other experiences. At this point, when we are ready, and we did eventually become ready, music and the arts become more than necessary. They become essential. At its core, art is a catharsis that we need to experience. Music always has been a catharsis for me, and especially after September 11, it became more so. Once I was ready to listen again, and that took a while after the event. There were three pieces of music that I immediately needed to listen to in order to experience catharsis. Those are the three pieces we are going to hear today. The common denominator of all three pieces, something my subconscious most likely picked up, is the sense of loss and how to cope with moving on, healing the pain while gaining and maintaining introspection, reflection, and hopefully peace with the traumatic events, whatever they may be of the past, leading to our own personal redemption. It is okay for us to feel loss, learn from it, not ignore it, and grow from it. Hopefully, you will find these three works musically and spiritually nourishing as much as I do. The pain of the loss of so many lives on 9-11, and also as a result of 9-11, will never fully go away. Our own personal losses never truly go away. But we can seek solace in so many beautiful things in this world, be it other people, art, literature, nature, and music. Seeking solace from music is truly the aim of today's podcast. Two of the works in this healing journey are by Johannes Brahms, and the third is by Aldon Berg. The first of the Brahms works that we are going to listen to is his Alto Rhapsody, Opus 53, for contralto solo, male chorus, and orchestra. It was composed in 1869 for the daughter of Robert and Clara Schumann, whose name was Julie. For those who know the work, it might come somewhat as a surprise that this would be considered a wedding gift, because the Rhapsody does evoke a lot of 
emotional pain, especially at the beginning. The very opening is an almost jarring dissonance in the orchestra. Those in the know, probably in 1869, and as those of us find out later, it is as if Brahms feels struck in the heart about this marriage, because it seems he may have had romantic interests in Julie, and he now had to accept what was happening and had to go through his own emotions. How was he going to do that? Well, he decided to set some words from a poem by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe called Heartsreise im Winter, or Journey to the Hearts Mountains in the Winter. It's a poem from Goethe's own storm and stress, or Sturm und Drang period, of self-identity, finding out who he is, why he goes through what he goes through. That's just the world in general, not just personal pain and the growth that comes from it. Brahms sets the stanzas that he chose from the poem into three distinct sections. The first two are in C minor, expressing this pain. The first section is very much a recitative, as if in an opera or oratorio. The second section, the actual aria. Finally, and with a switch to C major that acts rather like a bomb to one's injured soul, is scored for the solo alto singer with a male chorus and the orchestra, of course. I would like to read to you in English the uh, lines that Brahms chose from the poem to express his pain. It must have been very clear to the Schumanns what Brahms, a very young man at this time, well, not so young, but young, uh, was going through. And here is the translation. But who is that, standing apart? His steps recede into the bushes behind him. The thickets close, the grass straightens, the wilderness swallows him up. Alas! Who can heal the suffering of one for whom balm has turned to poison, and who sucked hatred of mankind from the abundance of love? Despised at first, and now despising, he secretly devours his own worth in insatiable self-love. Father of love, if there is a sound on your psaltery which his ear can discern, then quicken to his heart. Reveal to his clouded gaze the thousand springs by the side of the thirsty man in the desert. The recording I've chosen to listen to is my go-to. It features Canadian contralto Maureen Forrester, dear person in her own right, very sensitive. This performance tells me very much that Maureen understood a lot of the sadness of life, but wasn't going to let it get her down. And as far as I'm concerned, she owns this work. So let's hear her perform this now with the RIAS male chorus. RIAS stands for Radio in Americanischen Sektor, or Radio in the American Sector. This recording was made in the late 50s in West Berlin. They are all accompanied by the 
Radio Symphony Orchestra of Berlin under the direction of Ferenc Fritschai. Here then is Johannes Brahms' Alto Rhapsody, Opus 53.
the melancholic, bittersweet, but ultimately redemptive Alto Rhapsody Opus 53 for contralto solo, male chorus, and orchestra by Johannes Brahms. We heard it performed there most exquisitely by Canada's own Maureen Forrester with the Rias Men's Chorus and the Radio Symphony Orchestra of Berlin conducted by Ferenc Fritschai. The second work we're featuring by Johannes Brahms, the biggest one and uh, the biggest piece on this episode of three pieces of music that I found calming and soothing after 9-11 as a catharsis, is a work he composed a couple of years before the Alto Rhapsody. The Alto Rhapsody in many ways could be considered a postlude, but I prefer it as a prelude to this big work, and it's his famous Deutsches Requiem, Opus 45, or a German Requiem, to the words of the Holy Scriptures, as it is subtitled. The work was composed between 1865 and 1868, and again it has a tie-in to the Schumann family. In 1856, Robert Schumann had finally passed away. He was plagued with mental illness for the remaining few years of his life and was indeed in an insane asylum. This death affected Brahms tremendously. He was extremely close to Robert Schumann and to his wife, Clara Wieck. This possibly also explains why Brahms was infatuated with Julie, so that when she did get married, as I pointed out in 1868-69, uh, this was a dagger to Brahms's heart. And unfortunately, of course, Robert never got to see his daughter married. But Brahms had this thing about Schumann where he felt, as I mentioned, this connection, and I guess he wanted to be related to the, Sch to the Schumanns. He was always friendly and cordial and close to Clara, saw her as a mother figure, even though Brahms's own mother was very important in his life. And of course, his dedication to Sch Robert Schumann was because Robert was the one who saw in a very young Brahms the genius that was about to emerge. Schumann had thought of writing his own Deutsches Requiem. It was in a list of things to do in a book of uh, ideas that Schumann had hoped to work on, and it never came, of course, to fruition. But it could for Brahms. So the impetus of Schumann is great. It took a long time for Brahms to generate this work. It had a long gestation period from about 1856 until uh, its completion in 1868, although the majority of work was between 1865 and 1868. In that period, in the late 1860s, own mother had passed away, and many had thought that this requiem was in memory of her, but the fact of the matter is he did compose a fair chunk of it, except for maybe the last two movements by the before she had passed away. Nevertheless, that's an influence as well. Why the title of a German Requiem, because, not just because the work is in German, that follows an age-old tradition uh, dating back to the Renaissance, and that's very important because the structure, if not the language, definitely not the language, the structure of this Requiem, often overlooked as a fact, is very Renaissance in character, especially 
with rhythmic play and harmonic movement, but the language is still nonetheless very romantic. Brahms loved Renaissance music. He performed it, he edited it, he studied it, and he certainly did for this composition, and used in many ways as a model Heinrich Schütz's own German Requiem within his Musikalisches Exequiem. Schütz, of course, was the most important Renaissance early Baroque composer, the most important German composer in many ways before Johann Sebastian Bach. Many interpreters of this Requiem think that the only real influence compositionally on the work is Bach and Handel, but they're wrong. The, as I said, the influence is further back. Not that Bach and Handel were not influential composers in their own right in Brahms's own compositional style. He very much studied all the works of Bach and Handel that were being published again, and in some cases for the first time during Brahms's lifetime. In fact, he often got to see galleys of the publications by the various Bach and Handel societies that were publishing the music of those two composers. The other aspect of calling it a German Requiem is to make it very clear that this is not a Requiem in the Catholic sense of the word. The Requiem in Catholicism is very much a Mass for the departed, but who are journeying really towards purgatory. That is a concept that is anathema in Protestant thought. There is no purgatory. One meets their maker right away. But on top of that, Brahms really wasn't very religious. Yes, he kept a copy of the Lutheran Bible, made many annotations, and highlighted texts that he wanted to set himself to music. But he was looking at a more humanistic view of the lessons to be learned from within the Bible. Indeed, he had thought of naming the Requiem not a German Requiem, in fact, but he had actually played with the idea of calling it Ein Menschliches Requiem, or a Human Requiem. That would actually be more to the point. The issue, though, is that you're talking about a still very religious, albeit Protestant, well, Protestants were very religious, society in Germany in the 1860s. And the fact of the matter is, is that the Requiem makes no mention whatsoever to Jesus Christ, just to the Lord or my Lord. The texts were chosen on purpose to avoid any actual connection to Christianity. That didn't play well, and in fact, at its first performance, Brahms was reluctantly forced to include the aria from Handel's Messiah, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Not that Brahms disliked the work, he loved it immensely, but that aria within the context of this Requiem must have been grating because it sticks out like a sore thumb. So the whole point of the text is similar to what he would do later with the Goethe poem for uh, the Alto Rhapsody, is that these are texts that reflect a journey through loss and suffering that eventually leads one to peace and reconciliation with one's place in life. It's in six sections. Its arc is very, very uh, dramatic. I would say that the highlight of the six sections, even though the whole work is stunning, is the end of the third section of the third movement, which is Lord, 
make me to know mine end and the measure of my days. The very end of that section, basically on the words, but the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God and no torment shall touch them, is one of the greatest fugues on a pedal note point ever composed. So, as I said, it's in six sections. The titles, first in German and then in, in uh, English, I will um, read to you right now. The first section for chorus only, Selig sind die da leid tragen, or Blessed are they that mourn. The section, second section is for baritone solo and choir. There are two soloists in this work, a soprano and a baritone. Then alles Fleisch ist, ist wie Gras, or for all flesh is as grass. The third section, again a chorus with baritone solo, Herr lehre doch mich, or Lord make me to know mine end. Then an absolutely gorgeous pastoral almost, definitely um, a movement of great peace and tranquility is the chorus only movement. Wie lieblich sind deine Wohnungen. How lovely are thy tabernacles. Then a chorus with soprano solo, the only soprano solo in the work, but quite the solo. Ihr hab nun Treubigkeit, or and ye now therefore have sorrow. The sixth section, and I spoke wrongly earlier, which is remarkable considering how much I love this work and know this work. There are seven movements, not six. I'm sure some of you caught that, but perfection is not my long suit. The, sec the sixth section, again with the baritone solo with chorus, Denn wir haben hier keine bleibende Stadt, or for here have we no continuing city. And finally, a most peaceful conclusion, the chorus, Selig sind die Toten, Blessed are the dead. The performance we're going to hear was recorded using period instruments. In other words, the instruments that Brahms himself would have been familiar with different in many ways in construction, even for as late as the 1860s, whether it's wind instruments or even string instruments. The importance of this is to highlight the fact that quite often performances on modern instruments blur a lot of the melodic and thematic and harmonic ideas. That is partly due to a certain performance practice that made this work sound very syrupy. It's often chidishly referred to as the Wagner Sostenuto. Performing it that way hides the great hemiolas. Brahms was a champion of that sort of rhythmic play, what's called a hemiola. That's where you have one rhythmic um, idea uh, in a sort of a, in a time signature, that's what it is. It's as if you have bars of 4-4, four, four, but it feels like bars of 3-4. It's complicated, but it allows for certain amount of syncopation um, and really it's not as complicated as that if you know what you're doing. This was a great technique used in the Renaissance era and Brahms loved hemiolas. I think his nickname should have been hemiola because he uses it practically everywhere. But these rhythmic concepts as well as the harmonic movement again in a romantic language but with Renaissance construct can often be missed in a performance 
that first of all has instruments that are much more powerful than they were even in Brahms' time, and with this approach of being just too lugubrious. This performance recording for Philips Classics in the early 90s is anything but, and I think is absolutely champion. We are now going to hear this work performed by Charlotte Margiono Soprano, Rodney Gilfry Baritone, the Monteverdi Choir, and the Orchestre Révolutionnaire et Romantique. They are all directed by Sir John Elliot Gardner. Here is Johannes Brahms's Ein Deutsches Requiem, Opus 45.
for times of great stress and tribulation. That is a composition of great peace and tranquility. Ein Deutsches Requiem, Opus 45, by Johannes Brahms. We heard it performed there by Charlotte Margiono, soprano, Rodney Gilfry, baritone, the Monteverdi Choir, and the Orchestre Revolutionnaire Romantique, all conducted by Sir John Elliot Gardner. Seventy years, roughly, after the composition of the Requiem in 1868 by Brahms, we have a work for violin and orchestra by Alban Berg. The work was completed in 1935 and was the last completed work of Alban Berg, who unfortunately passed away rather young in life at the age of 50 from sepsis. The generation of this work, the kernel of inspiration, was actually the death of 18-year-old Manon Gropius. She had contracted polio. Why did this move Berg? Well, he knew the family because Manon Gropius was the daughter of Alma Mahler, who was once Gustav Mahler's wife, and her current husband at the time, Walter Gropius. Alma had already known tragedy because the children she had with Gustav Mahler never made it to adulthood themselves. Supposedly, Manon was a wonderful young human being. Therefore, he dedicated this work to the memory of an angel, as it is written in the manuscript. He was so moved by her death that he put aside work on his second opera, a work he never completed, Lulu, in order to write the concerto. Don't want to say too much about this work because there really isn't too much to say. It speaks for itself. Yes, it is in the style popularized by Berg's teacher Schoenberg, what is known as the New Vienna School, 12-tone writing. I will not get into the complex theory behind that. But the one misconception is that the 12-tone technique is entirely dissonant, not pleasing to the ear. That is... Yet another example of a society that often doesn't accept change. There was really nothing in the compositional style that would even suggest remotely um, a break in pleasant sounds. Let's put it that way. The idea of using scales, key signatures, that was already broken. That's fine. This work is still very lyrical. In fact, it was showing a direction in Berg's compositional style that may have actually been heading away, shall we say, from 12-tone, even though, as I just said, it's not necessarily um, a purely dissonant concept. This work is quite lyrical in and of itself, most likely to emphasize the gentle spirit of poor Menon. The work is in two movements, but each movement is divided into two. The tone row that is basically used um, for the work is actually based, interestingly enough, on a chorale melody that Bach himself had used in his Cantata o Ewigkeit du Donnerwort. It is a melody that was composed by Johann Rudolf Ahle, but Bach had created a chorale setting of his own of the melody, and that is actually used as a genesis for the tone row. You don't notice it at the beginning, but you will notice it in the second half of the second movement. 
because Berg quotes it note for note, the harmonization. What's very interesting is that the first notes that the violin plays in the first movement is just the open strings in arpeggiated form. G, D, A, E, then E, A, D, G. To me, that also suggests the purity of the spirit being immortalized in this work, that of Manon. The work also concludes with that intervallic idea, this time set against a solo violin, the solo violin holding a pedal note, and the entire string section playing that arpeggio with some pleasing harmonies from the winds and remaining string instruments in the orchestra. The first movement, as well, quotes a Corinthian folk song in its second half of the movement, and it will make an appearance again in the second half of the second movement alongside the Bach theme. It is in fact the only melodic idea within the concerto that is not based on the tone realm. So as I said, this work is in memory of a dear soul. In many ways though, and I don't think Berg meant this really as the uh, main purpose of the work, but considering when it was written, we're talking two years after the rise of the Nazi state in Germany. This work is in many ways a requiem for a society that was heading towards destruction. Even though Berg died in 1935, it was quite clear that German society was heading in this direction. So it's as if that this concerto is a bittersweet goodbye to the life he knew. Yet again, it's a work that causes one to reflect, it does for me, and to consider that we have to deal with what we do deal with in life because it's the only life we have. So it is actually a very passive, contemplative concerto. I actually had a chance to hear it live, performed by the violinist in the recording we're going to use. It was it is Henrik Gering. I heard him perform it in Toronto in the very early 1980s, and I was also fortunate enough to discuss the work with him. As with the Alto Rhapsody and Maureen Forster, I've always felt that Henrik Schering owns this work. When I heard it, it left an indelible impression on my then still rather unformed teenage brain. Let's listen to this absolutely exquisite concerto by Alban Berg, performed by Henrik Schering with the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Raphael Kubelik.
very peaceful and tranquil, some may disagree with me, but that's how I feel, the very peaceful and tranquil Violin Concerto by Alban Berg. We heard it in a recording for Deutsche Grammophon in a performance by Henrik Schering, violin, with the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Raphael Kublik. That was the third of three works, the first two, by Brahms, The Alto Rhapsody, and The Deutsches Requiem. That was the third of three works that I listened to once I started to make sense of the chaos and pain of 9-11 20 years ago. I felt it necessary to hear them again with the memory still fresh in my mind as it must be in many of yours. I hope it provided a certain amount of contemplation for you during this, I won't call it an anniversary because that word suggests happiness more than anything else, better to call it a commemoration of the tragic events. As I pointed out, these are the works that I first came to, almost drawn subconsciously to the peace that they provide. I'd be very interested to know how you approached the arts again when you could, if you could, immediately after the events. Maybe you remember the first piece of music you listened to after the fact. I don't know how soon or how late after the fact you could do that. We're all different. Or if indeed it left an indelible memory onto you, the piece of music that you first listened to. Maybe some other artistic endeavor, maybe some other event that finally got you to live again after the events of 9-11. I'd be very much interested to hear what your experiences were. I have an email address associated with my show. It's kapustadave at yahoo.ca. You can find that address embedded within the platform you use to listen to this podcast. For now, we come to the end. There really is not much else I want to add to those three beautiful pieces of music Anything else would be superfluous, whether in music or in talk. For now, I will bid you adieu. You have been visiting Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic. Thank you for listening.